Chapter 1. Arajun. Learning from past mistakes. My grandfather was my hero. I used to call him Arajun, an Iranian term of endearment meaning dear man. He was born in 1900 and passed away at the wise age of 104. He was a wonderful human being and treated me like the apple of his eye. He treated all of his grandchildren in this way. Arjun earned great wealth during his life and yet when he died he was a relatively poor man. His wisdom did not translate into sustained financial success. This always perplexed me and as a younger man I couldn't understand what had gone wrong for him. How had he been so successful and then somehow lost it all? It was only after I had started successfully operating and then lost several businesses that I was able to identify the difference between becoming profitable and remaining profitable. Arajun once told me a story about bread. He told me that from when he was about 10 years old, the price of bread didn't increase for 35 years. He remembered that the price of bread remained the same until about 1945. And that stuck with me. I thought to myself, how is this possible? Eventually I realized that time just moved slower back then and that life is very different today. Now we are experiencing the world at a super fast pace in a way that we didn't quite understand or know how to react to. I also came to the conclusion that running a business became harder in the fast lane, in some ways, because things are constantly and rapidly changing. This notion has driven me to explore the challenges of staying afloat and inspired me to develop my forever profitable methodology. We'll get back to that. Like Arjun, I made it big and then lost it all. Not only did I lose my wealth, but more importantly, for a time I lost my ability to be successful. It took me a long time to discover that without the right mindset, remaining profitable would be a futile battle. So many of us live to chase success, but when we achieve it, we fail to realize that success isn't an end point. We can easily forget that it is a continuous process of looking ahead and staying ahead. Success is not necessarily a single or inspiring victory. Small bite-sized victories are just as valuable as the major milestones that you set out to achieve. Today I call myself a trend and strategy specialist, a business coach, an entrepreneur and a speaker. My enduring commitment to hold on to these titles with confidence is constantly reinforced by small victories that I celebrate along the way. I had my first taste of success at a very young age. Looking back, my motivation for success was driven by a need for money and status. My parents had a tumultuous relationship. When they separated, I was only eight years old and suddenly had to become the man of the house. During this time, I was always sensitive to the fact that my mother didn't have enough money to make it to the end of the month, and as a result, I was determined to avoid the hardships of financially challenged environment. At the age of 13, I got my first job packing groceries at our local supermarket. They paid me three rand twenty an hour. I used to go to school on a Monday and listen to everyone talk about the latest videos they had watched over the weekend, but I could never join in on the excitement because we didn't have enough money to buy a video machine. I started working after school and on weekends eager to earn money. After saving my first two salaries, I was able to buy a video machine. My joy was abruptly interrupted when I realized I also needed a video contract to hire the videos, but I'd spent all my money on the machine. So I had to work longer hours and save for another month by which time I was running out of the chutzpah for it. Eventually, I got the contract, started watching videos, and eagerly joined the conversation with my friends. That was my first experience of what it meant to make money, 
and what I was able to achieve with it. My ambitions to fit into the social norm didn't end there. When all the kids at school started watching Mnet subscription television, my family again could not afford it. I aimed higher this time, and at an age of 15, I started working as a personal fitness trainer. I made decent money and eventually bought the coveted Mnet decoder and subscription. These first encounters with success were all driven by material ambitions, but they gave me a sense of freedom and power that money presented. It made me feel victorious, and I was completely hooked. At the age of 21, I moved to London and worked as a bar manager. By the time I returned to South Africa three years later, I had saved quite a bit of money and I began my journey as an entrepreneur. I bought several vending machines and started a shoe distribution business, both of which did well. Around this time, I fell in love with a new restaurant that had opened in Cape Town called Primi Piatti. The concept was a unique mix of industrial style and contemporary Italian food, and I was blown away by its energy. The brand amazed me in so many ways. It was just what the next generation of diners was hungry for. I had always been an early adopter and had the natural ability to sniff out the new and powerful ideas. When I experienced the restaurant for the first time, I thought to myself, this is going to pump. Before long, I owned the first of the brand's franchise restaurants in Constantia, Cape Town. It was a magical experience. I sold my vending machines and the shoe business to focus on my restaurant, which became my life and passion. For the eight years that I was with the brand, I owned and sold a total of six franchise restaurants in Cape Town, Johannesburg, and Pretoria. I started earning a lot of money and was catapulted into a world in which I held both power and position. This also meant I had to learn how to become a leader and to run multiple businesses at the same time. I felt bulletproof and thought I had everything I had always dreamed of. After buying my sixth franchise, one of the restaurants started faltering. In hindsight, the area that it was based in was not doing that well anymore and the brand had lost some of its original charm. Instead of looking at how I could adjust to the changing times, I used my cash reserves to top up the losses while trying to sell the ailing restaurant. My downhill run had begun. After 18 months of cash injections and trying to sell, I ran out of money and had to declare bankruptcy. One of my restaurants went insolvent and the rest of them folded because they were no longer generating enough profit. Over the course of the two years, I had dropped from being a multimillionaire with a portfolio of assets at the age of 28 to a man with nothing. All of it was gone. I lost my fancy wheels and my fancy house and moved into my friend's second bedroom penniless and carless. My early 30s were rough years for me. I had lost my personality along with my bank balance. It was the beginning of the realization that I would have to reinvent myself to find out what I was all about. I started this process by blaming myself. When I got involved with the franchise restaurant, the success was so blinding that I was scared of changing anything. I think this is a phenomenon common among business owners. I was stuck in an ironic rut of success that became a prison in which I was both the prisoner and the warden. When I saw the brand starting to fail, I blamed myself. I thought I wasn't a good enough operator or that I wasn't pushing myself or my staff hard enough. In retrospect, the high energy industrial warehouse feel that worked so well in those first five years had grown stale and mine weren't the only restaurants to suffer. The brand needed to stay edgy and follow the trends in my opinion, changing with the times would have meant moving to lighter food, calmer energy, and more wholesome feel. Since the franchise is still in existence today, it's clear that some owners managed to adapt and cater for the next generation of trend-aware customers and that there were real solutions. 
I was right to blame myself, but I was doing it for the wrong reasons. Blinded by my own arrogance and refusal to fail, I simply couldn't see what was happening. I overstayed my welcome by three years. Had I sold out at that point, I would have left with really good money and a great history with the brand. But because I was scared stiff of any change, I wasn't able to look at my business objectively. Ultimately, I was too emotionally involved. The combination of falling into this comfortable rut of success, being afraid of change, and self-blame were dangerous obstacles that I had created for myself. It isn't unusual to become subjective and emotionally involved in a business. If we don't bring in an objective point of view, for example, a chief future officer to advise us differently, we're going to carry on doing what we've always done because it used to work. The old adage of, if it's not broken, don't fix it, does not withstand the test of time. Nothing is unbroken forever. Something always eventually breaks or is disrupted. Why? Because consumers' needs and behaviors are constantly changing, and never in human history has the change been as rapid as it is now. Looking back, I now know that I was not watching the trends and I was not innovating. I hadn't predicted the disruption of our market and I hadn't even reacted to it, except to throw good money off the bad. And this determined my downfall. I learned a lot from that process and the fact that if we don't continuously innovate and watch the trends, we're going to start facing the consequences. Since the days of my Arajun, things have sped up at such a rate that we have to be watching new trends on a continuous basis because there could be a disruptor coming along to knock us off our pedestal at any moment. Going through a bankruptcy has taught me so much about what I'm doing now, helping businesses not to make the mistakes I made and to move into the future with purpose and optimism. My methodology and my approach have materialized as consequences of my failure. The crush that I felt after falling from hero to zero was painful and the whole experience forced me to face my emotional self, my personal conflict and my rocky relationship with money. I became a victim and it took me years to snap out of it, to understand what went wrong and how to build myself up again. I adopted this victim mindset around the age of 32 and I stayed there without realizing it. I struggled to make money. My internal dialogue was a sad conversation with myself to the tune of, why haven't I made it yet? How come they've made it and I haven't yet? What's wrong with me? What the hell is wrong with the market? Can't they see how amazing I am? I was blaming myself, everything and everyone, and I was going nowhere. Realizing this very fact was the start of my transformation. First, I had to change my internal voice. Then I could focus on a new path to external success. Peeing in your nappy. I use this analogy of peeing in your nappy to describe how self-victimization becomes familiarity. When you pee in your nappy, the first five seconds are amazing. You're nice and warm and feel relieved. But within a couple of minutes, it starts getting cold and it smells and the experience turns horrible. This is what happens when we start thinking like a victim. The first few seconds are familiar and we feel comfortable in this way of thinking. But soon we find we're heading down a bottomless pit and that we actually hate being there. The initial, perhaps instinctive, experience may be rewarding, but you cannot be content with playing a futile blame game. Feeling and thinking like a victim are bad habits that we create for ourselves. Scientists, psychologists and neurologists have extensively researched the intricacies of habits 
how they're formed and what sustains or changes them. It's a vast field with far too many studies, findings and theories to mention in detail here, but I'll recommend one book, The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do and How to Change by Charles Duhigg. Duhigg presents a variety of scenarios that explains the so-called habit loop, which is cue, routine, reward. This loop can be applied to everything from societies, organizations, and sports strategies to consumer habits and addiction. If a victim mindset is a habit, then there's a cue or trigger that ignites victim thought patterns. The habit is the routine that becomes familiar and the reward might be the sense of false security that you feel within that victim space. Our brains like the ease of forming habits and going into autopilot. We learn and adapt to respond in a certain way. Regular tasks like driving or washing our hair are habitual and become automated behaviors that over time the brain can perform without making an active decision to do so. As a result, our behaviors can become non-intentional acts. Moreover, habits that are formed unconsciously and without effort often appear to be the most durable. To change a victim mindset, we would therefore need to create a routine that is enticing enough for us to form a new, meaningful habit. When the brain is accustomed to thinking in a victim mindset, the process itself becomes a routine that we get trapped into thinking as normal and okay. For me, it was easier to default to a victim mindset because my brain had already habituated the state of mind as my comfort zone. A personal example. When a friend of mine was chosen to be on the cover of GQ magazine, it sent me on an internal tirade of why not me, why him, WTF. Instead of being happy for my friend and being inspired by what he had achieved, my reaction was to resent it. And perversely, my victim mindset took some comfort in the resentment because, yes, I thought, this is evidence that the world is against me. Breaking out this pattern is as tough as breaking any bad habit and requires continuous work. We have to rewire our brains and keep reminding ourselves to do so but at times it just feels better to revert back to that familiar place of peeing in your nappy. I was stuck in a soggy nappy for a long time, until I had an eye-opening experience thanks to a spiritual ritual involving a South American teacher plant known as ayahuasca. The plant has been used locally for thousands of years, but has only started to gain wider usage around the world as an alternative therapy in the last decade. It was a profound experience that I highly recommend. This sojourn into the depths of my mind revealed to me that I had adopted a victim mindset that was overwhelming, crucial aspect of my life. Money, business, and my failing marriage. It was no surprise then that I was being defeated in all three. Suddenly it became clear to me that I was stuck in a bubble of victimhood, and this moment marked the end of a long trek through failures and the beginning of a path that I am on now. I realized that I had to stop sulking and that all the promising strategies I had built were meaningless without the right mindset. I had been applying all the right methods to my own business, but could not make it work because of my mindset and my emotional approach to money. I started researching, reading books, and listening to podcasts to help me figure out what tools I would need in order to change my emotional space. From the outside, what I had been doing for the previous 10 years may have looked great, but that did not determine my reality. While people on the outside were spurring me on and telling me the things I wanted to hear, I was having a different internal dialogue with myself. The external was what everybody could see, 
but internally, I couldn't even see how I was going to make it to the end of the month. It was a familiar dread from my childhood that left me anxious and unable to truly excel. It took me two years to make sense of and physically get over losing my restaurants, but it took me far longer to emotionally recover. When I applied my rational mind, I was able to get back up and give it another try. Emotionally, however, I was stuck in the victim mindset and would ultimately spend eight years like this, preventing myself from achieving by keeping my mind in a constrained space. The minute I steered my emotional space towards success, welcoming money without anxiety and focusing on self-forgiveness and my own self-worth, things took off. Sometime later, in this new phase of my career, I had the best ever financial month since my days as a franchisee. But when the income tapered off the following month, I started having the old conversation with myself. I wonder what's going to happen. What if I can't maintain this? I had to stop myself, set aside the victim mentality, and trust that I was on the right path and that I could keep it up. Although I would love to travel back in time to tell my 28-year-old self to sell now, sell now, and get out earlier, I would not have built my current businesses without having gone through the perils. Right now, my work is very much based on my not getting out early, and I'm advocating that work is more fun than fun. People have this idea that fun is about playing a game of beach bats on the beach or having an ice cream, and those are great activities. But for me, being on stage and talking to a thousand people is just as enjoyable. The idea and concept of fun is not about work. It is about doing something that adds zest to your life, allows you to shine and do what you love without peeing in your nappy. The long game. All of this allowed me, at the age of 40, to start finding genuine success in my business life, which of course involves success in your personal life and is about a lot more than money. I don't claim to offer a magic solution or silver bullet for your problems. I don't believe anyone can. But I do believe that my journey and the lessons and insights I've learned along the way are particularly relevant today. My story exemplifies both the risk of failure and the potential for success in our ever-connected, fast-moving world. If 15 years ago, someone had advised me, slow down, look around, start focusing on why you can't love yourself and follow this advice, I would have found a shortcut around many years of work. You might be thinking, great, so all I need to do is read this book, apply the tools, and then everything will be excellent by tomorrow. Not so fast. I have some more analogies up my sleeve. Although I was in an eager rush to get out of my rut, I also had to learn the art of implementing a patient strategy. The game of cricket has taught me why this works. I am by no means a cricket expert, but I am a keen observer of strategies applied in sports. In top-level cricket, there is a one-day game, the one-day international, and a five-day game, test cricket. The one-day game has a limited number of overs requiring a hard and fast approach to achieving the most runs in a single innings. The strategy is generally aggressive, with both teams focusing on the attack. Players are more instinctive and less cautious since time is of the essence. During the five-day game, team strategies and tactics are prepared much longer, sometimes months in advance, and are applied and adapted with intent throughout the duration of the game. Players must choose wisely when to defend and when to attack with purpose. In a nutshell, the short game is fast and reckless, while the long game is calculating and strategic. Importantly, 
whereas the short game is quickly forgotten, the longer game is considered the truest cricketing format, where the highest form of sports success lies. The point here is not hard to glean. Certain things in life need time. The most rewarding form of cricket takes five days. An apple tree needs time to grow. Career success is measured over years and decades, not weeks and months. A plan that plays out over a longer time period requires prudence and patience, and it's where real success lies. When you play the long game to achieve your goals, whether it's in a marriage, pursuing an interest, or achieving a business plan, you know that success is coming, but it will not be immediate. By adopting a shorter methodology and telling yourself, I want it now, it must happen now, you're trying to force things to happen. And that's where success can turn to failure in a blink of an eye. Where do these time limits come from? We create them for ourselves with blind impatience. If we can forego the illusion of these time limits and play along a game with a medium to long-term strategy, we start seeing the bigger picture. When you try to force a plan to be faster than it's supposed to be, the only thing you're doing is causing stress for yourself and those around you and compromising your chances of success. Since discarding my victim mentality and picking myself up, I have become far more accustomed to practicing the long game in business and in my personal life. It is easier, it is calmer, and the decision-making process is not as pressured. In the past, I would give myself finite deadlines and instantly become tense in any given situation. Even the word deadline creates a gloomy atmosphere as we try to squeeze our energy into getting somewhere as quickly as possible. Watch cricketers play a five-day test match. They are calm, they have a strategy on day one, and on day three, they have another plan. They know they must be patient and adaptable. In the one-day game, they are rushing to get as many runs and wickets as possible, and the tension is palpable. To live life as a one-day player is a fool's game. When I get caught up in the rush of wanting something to happen now, 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 I actively stop myself and apply the long game. I immediately relax and I no longer feel strangled by deadlines and inhibit my goals. The biggest challenge that we encounter when attempting to change our mindset is to understand the importance of being aware. We have to catch ourselves when bad habits take control and blind ambition gets in the way of true achievement. More importantly, we need replacement tools to negate unconstructive inclinations. Yogi Bhajan, a spiritual guru who introduced Kundalini Yoga, among other things, to the United States said, if you want to learn something, read about it. If you want to understand something, write about it. If you want to master something, teach it. Writing this book is my way of mastering the tool sets that I've been using in my talks and workshops by teaching them. Yes, I still fall into the traps. I still pee in my nappy from time to time because it's familiar and comfortable and because it's human nature. It's difficult to overcome those bad habits because they are so ingrained, but it is possible. Your challenge will be to apply each process and methodology described in this book with the long game process. Take your time, pee in your nappy, catch yourself and dig your way out, learn the real meaning of success, then make your success enduring.